Welcome to Real Issues, Real Conversations, a podcast of Ohio Humanities. In this series, we explore democracy and the informed citizen. I'm Rachel Hopkin, I'm in Columbus, Ohio, and today my guest is Patricia Gallagher-Newbury. She's president of the Society of Professional Journalists, and she also runs the journalism program at Miami University in Oxford, Ohio, which is where she's joining me from. Patricia Gallagher-Newbury, welcome to the podcast. Thanks very much, Rachel. Happy to be with you. Can you tell me a little bit about your role as the president of the Society of Professional Journalists? Sure. I'm the president of the board. I've been a member of SPJ since I was an undergrad, so going on about 40 years. As president, um, I run a board of nine people. I'm in daily communication with the headquarters staff. Um, Our main goal at SPJ is to promote and protect journalism, and we do that through a large variety of programs everything from contests to conferences, and we're beating the drum for journalism every day. We're one of the oldest press groups in the country. We've been around since 1909. We're among the largest with about just shy of 6,000 members across the country. And as I said, what we're trying to do is promote the press, the value of the press to our democracy, to the American public, and uh, advocate for press freedoms. So in the time that you've been involved with journalism, which, as you said, is around 40 years now, how have you seen the position of journalists change? I think it waxes and wanes. It changes over time, reflecting political realities, mores of society. So, you know, my earliest engagement going back 40 years ago was as an undergrad, and it was a pretty pro-press time. At least it felt like it to a early 20s something journalist. It was just after Watergate, and there was a real bump in the trust in the press, the affection for the press in the post-Watergate years, in as much as Bernstein and Woodward were the uh, journalists who um, essentially brought down the the Nixon administration. Uh, And so we saw a real affection for journalism at that time, a real boom in the number of students wanting to study journalism. So you go through the 80s, 90s, 2000s, and into the uh, where we are now. And it really changes, in my estimation, with the current administration. You know, how does the sitting president treat the press? What's the fate of the press at the moment? And by that, I mean, what's the, what's the health of the press? Is the press getting some positive attention for some new development in the world of journalism or some misstep in the world of journalism, right? So The tides change quickly as we uh, change the occupant of the White House and as we change the actual behaviors of the media. I guess my natural lead on question from that is what is the position of the press given the current administration? And we're recording this interview in March of 2020. Correct. So we've had uh, President Trump now since January of uh, 2017. So we're a little more than three years into his His time as president, I would say uh, he goes at the press daily, right? So the press is a bit battered, a bit weary of being the punching bag for the president of the United States. That does not mean, however, that the press has been cowed or has stood down to these constant attacks from the White House. If anything, I think that the press has fought back vigorously, rigorously, daily to maintain its preeminent place in our democracy. 
I'll just use a current example. Here we are in March of 2020. We're in the midst of this gigantic COVID-19 crisis in our country. The president staged a press conference yesterday. Happily, the administration has been reacting very swiftly and frequently to this crisis. So yesterday's press conference starts, and it's the usual characters in the front of the room, the president, um, somebody with uh, his emergency response team, the vice president, and so on and so forth. And somehow this press conference got totally off track instead of reacting to the questions from the press corps in the room about the administration's handling of the coronavirus outbreak. It becomes a another beating up of press in the room. Strangely, there was a question from a pro-Trump news organization, and it gave the president the happy opportunity to start beating up on the New York Times, the Washington Post, CNN, et cetera, et cetera. It just went totally off script. And we got kind of the usual attacks that the press is putting out fake news, which is incorrect, that the press is the enemy of the people, which is incorrect, that the press is somehow in cahoots with the Chinese government, which is incorrect, and so on and so forth. So the president likes to beat up on the press. He likes to say that the press does not give him, Donald Trump, enough credit for his leadership, his decision-making, his policy. So this is what the press has been doing since the advent of the Trump administration, trying to do its job, moving forward, keeping the American people informed about whatever is the news of the day, and a president who takes every opportunity, or sometimes no opportunity at all, to beat up on the press and their coverage of him. In your role as the president of the Society of Professional Journalists, how much are you seeing this affecting the morale of the people involved in this profession? Is it demoralizing them or is it making them perhaps embrace their their work even more dedicatedly than they would have done already? I think it's more the latter. I've seen most news organizations push back, push back frequently and uh, robustly, either their own Publishers or editors will speak back against this kind of uh, demonizing of the press, or they themselves, as journalists, will simply say, "Uh, Mr. President, that's incorrect. And the question I'm trying to ask you is, right? So I do not think that the press has been diminished by this, but angry, yes, right? Uh, Do see frequent responses to this kind of behavior, pointing out to the president that it's dangerous to seek to diminish the role of the press and that it's anti-constitutional, right? It goes against our Constitution and the First Amendment rights that journalists enjoy on behalf of their audiences, right? Journalists exercise their First Amendment rights on behalf of the American public. It's not out of some vanity or some desire to put themselves above their audience. Journalists use the First Amendment to protect the democracy of all of us. We fight for the First Amendment to keep it strong so that when you, Joe Citizen, Jane Citizen, seek to exercise your First Amendment rights, that they are protected, that they are robust, that they are not diminished by an administration, whether it's the president or some uh, member of his administration. So yes, I think that the press has been fighting back in appropriate ways since the beginning of the Trump administration, as they have throughout time. 
throughout time, we've had a tension between the executive branch and the fourth estate, as we like to call it, the working media. There are very few presidents who liked their coverage, always thought the press was too hard on them. And by the same token, the media has long said this president is the least compliant or the most unpress friendly. Although I must say that in my lifetime, I think we can all agree that Donald Trump has been the least press friendly of presidents over these 40 years that I've been paying attention. So perhaps by way of comparison, could you tell us a little bit about Barack Obama's relationship with the press or perhaps about uh, Hillary Clinton's relationship with the press, Donald Trump's opponent in the 2016 election? Right. So um, Barack Obama came into office with a lot of, I don't want to say he got a easier time of it, but I do think that journalism writ large liked Obama better, that the tone of the coverage was generally more favorable, that perhaps he got the benefit of the doubt more often. And I would say that's because he did not go after the press in quite the same way. He didn't use the kind of vicious and personal attacks that we have seen Donald Trump employ. He didn't use language like you're the enemy of the people, this is fake news, you know, the, the calling out from the podium to certain journalists. You know, Barack Obama didn't do any of that, right? He had a far different style. He was very smooth and polished at the microphone, a higher level of discourse altogether. And for those and probably other reasons, I do think that the press liked Barack Obama better. Now, was he a perfect president in the eye of the media who covered him? No, he was not nearly as transparent as he promised to be and as journalists wanted him to be. He did not grant as many one-on-one -on -one interviews as the press wanted him to be. He didn't do as many press briefings face-to-face, -face, mixing it up with the press as journalists wanted. So over eight years, you know, I'm sure he got weary of press attention to him and his administration that wasn't wholly celebratory. <laughs> but I do think that the press treated him with a little bit more respect and a little uh, more positive tone. As to Hillary Clinton, let me think. I don't think that Hillary Clinton has a great affection for the media. I think that she, like so many of uh, folks who run for office, probably thought she could have used a little more Obama love. So I can't think of any particular instances where she and media really mixed it up. But, you know, I think her husband, when he was president, Bill Clinton, enjoyed fairly positive coverage from White House reporters and journalism overall, not uniformly, and certainly during the impeachment proceedings and the Monica Lewinsky story. I'm sure that Bill Clinton would have been happy if journalists went away altogether <laughs> and just stopped paying attention to that story. But I do think that there's a particularly fraught relationship between the current president and the press because, number one, Trump attacks the media so directly with his verbiage. And number two, he does not present well at the microphone. And by that, I mean he doesn't have an elevated way of expressing himself. So that does not serve him well when the media go to cover him. Who would you say of all the presidents in the past has possibly had the, the most contentious relationship with the press bar Donald Trump? 
probably Nixon. Nixon uh, did not like the press, was clear about not liking the press, was taken down by the press, right, if not the Washington Post, and it's reporting on Watergate and all the events that then transpired. Who knows if he would have been forced to resign. Nixon had an enemies list in the press. I mean, he kept a list of journalists he didn't like and blackballed them. So certainly uh, he would be high on the list of presidents who did not have affection for the press. There were others. Uh, Truman was not very fond of newspapers and publishers. Wilson, going back to World War I in the early part of the 20th century, was said to uh, not like the press and, you know, tried to skirt the press with his own propaganda to support the war effort. This is an interesting little scenario back uh, when Jefferson was president of the United States, and now we're going way, way back, right? In the way, way back machine, he was seen to have been fond of the press. He's the president who uttered the, uh, the famous quote, were it left to me to decide whether we should have a government without newspapers or newspapers without a government, I should not hesitate to prefer the latter right? Newspapers without a government. And so that's always quoted in all the journalism textbooks, that Jefferson was a champion of the press, that if he had to pick between the government and the newspaper, he would take the newspaper. But apparently he said that at one time, okay, he wins a lot of kudos for that. But later on, um, he didn't believe that through and through every day. And he had plenty of criticism for how the journalists of the day covered him, Thomas Jefferson. Beyond that, Teddy Roosevelt apparently had a pretty contentious relationship with the press, really tried to control the press, tried to do a lot of publicity stunts to get good coverage, happy stories about him. I don't know so much about FDR. He had the longest time in the White House with four consecutive terms. On balance, I don't want to overstate it, but on balance, I think he generally had a pretty good run because he had all of these programs during the New Deal that he was uh, pushing out to the American public, and it was a post-war era, and I do think that he enjoyed pretty favorable attention from the journalists of the day. Those are years I obviously was not alive for, and so I have less of a, a memory of those. But I started paying attention when I was a kid in the 70s, and yeah, I think Nixon is the first president in my own recognition and I definitely remember him not liking the press and saying some pretty nasty things about the press in those days. So was the whole Watergate thing and Bernstein and Woodward's journalism, was that part of why you became a journalist? You know what? That's a really good question. I probably did somewhat. So I went into journalism school in 1979, which would have been just a few years after that. And it was a curious choice for the daughter of a Republican <laughs> who kind of liked Nixon, as I recall. And my father was no fan of journalism or newspapers, but I thought it was a pretty cool profession to go into. And I would have to say, yeah, I was, I was turned on by the power of the press because of the Watergate story. Yeah. Right, right. Okay, so coming back to Trump, you talked a little bit about this press conference that came this attack on various news outlets. Does he target outlets or does he target people, journalists in particular? And is it more men or women? Or how does his strategy of attack work if there is such a thing? 
Right. Well, I don't think it's much of a strategy. I think it's in the moment and who's been mean or nice to him lately. But to your question, yes, he uh, singles out both journalists by name and news organizations by name. So let me start with CNN. He's had a particularly unhealthy relationship with CNN throughout his presidency. There's one journalist in particular at CNN named Jim Acosta. He has singled out Jim Acosta by name, by pointing to him, by yelling at him in press briefings, your fake news, your fake news, your fake news, uh, by banning him at one point from the press room and seeking to take away his White House credentials. CNN fought back, filed a suit to recoup its credentials. Uh, Happily, Jim Acosta was allowed back into the press room. The reason that Donald Trump doesn't like Jim Acosta in particular is because Acosta will ask a question, and if it's not answered, We'll ask it again and again and again. We'll say, but Mr. President, um, I asked X and you didn't answer X and we'll come back and try to get a response. Now, some people will say that Acosta's a bit of a showboater, but I respond to that by saying, well, that's what TV people have to do. They have to have the camera on them so they can have their camera person record their question to the president and then get the president's response. And so is that showboating? I don't know. That strikes me as pretty legit television journalism. You ask a question, you expect an answer. If you don't get it, you ask again and again. So yes, CNN is the target of the president frequently. The New York Times is another target of the president frequently. At least early on in his administration, he very frequently would tweet the failing New York Times. So if he wanted to push back against something that the Times reported, he wouldn't just say, the New York Times is incorrect in their report today, blah, blah, blah. It would be the failing New York Times. And then he would use that phrase again and again and again through weeks and weeks of tweets. Well, it seems to me he stopped using that quite as much. The New York Times is not failing. The New York Times is very financially successful and healthy at this time because they have learned how to capture their readers as digital customers. And so to call them failing is patently false. And it does seem as though the president has stopped doing that as frequently. In terms of other news organizations, he calls out the Washington Post frequently as fake news. And the networks maybe a little less frequently. So ABC, CBS, NBC, maybe a little less frequently than CNN, the New York Times, and the Washington Post. He seems to, of course, have a fond and affectionate relationship with Fox News and some of their anchors who are clearly on his side. I'm not talking about their news reporters. I'm talking about their anchors who are partisan anchors who are clearly seeking to tell a conservative point of view, and they make no bones about that. That's not as though I'm I'm characterizing them as something they would not. But I'm thinking of Sean Hannity, for example, the Fox and Friends broadcast in the morning, that's very Trump-friendly. So he doesn't use that kind of language when he's talking about Fox News, unless occasionally he's unhappy with some story that they've done, and then he'll let them know either directly or through tweets that he's unhappy with their story. And sometimes we see that change the script, and sometimes we don't. In the current environment, this has been an interesting thing to watch. About a week ago, Fox, as a news organization, was calling out other media for being too alarmist about the coronavirus crisis, that 
other journalists were overplaying the COVID-19 story and causing fear and alarm and chaos and so forth. Um, and just, you know, basically telling other journalists to just relax, you're overblowing it. Um, early this week, the week we're in of March 20, whatever we're at right now, the tone has changed at Fox. Many, many of their leading personalities are now on the air saying, this is a crisis. We need to take this seriously. And it's hard to know who's guiding who here, whether Fox is taking its cues from the White House to acknowledge the seriousness of the moment, or the president has changed his tone on coronavirus by watching Fox, right? So you often see this kind of chicken and egg or call and response, if you will, between Fox and the White House. But they do seem to be singing from the same hymnal now. They're both acknowledging that we're in a very serious crisis that needs serious and sober attention, both from the administration and from the news media. Speaking more generally about the position of the press today, we've talked about the relationship of the president with the press and how that can be quite invigorating by the sounds of it for the people in the press. But what about other issues like the rise of internet media, which has decreased the sale of hard copies of newspapers and is more difficult to monetize on the web? How is that affecting the profession Well, it's been dramatic, right? So I've been in this game long enough to have seen the rise of the internet and how it's impacted the entire industry for good and for bad. So go back 15, 20 years as we started thinking about this thing called the internet. Uh, Journalism was very tentative at first, like, oh, will it stick around this WWW web thing, right? And now, of course, everybody is on the web. All journalism is delivered via the web, but they're still trying to do their original journalism. So newspapers still have newspapers, but they're also, of course, fully engaged on the web. So it's been a very, very difficult transition to try to deliver your media your, your form of journalism on your original platform, but then also operate fully 110% on the web. And the reality is that they're trying to serve both of these delivery modes with about half the staff, right? Because the internet took away huge swaths of advertising, big categories left never to return. And the revenues that news organizations had to run the shop, to staff the newsroom, have just been decimated. Uh, The net result has been that most newsrooms have about half the number of people that they once had, and they're trying to do two different things, their original form of delivery and web delivery. And so the calculus is difficult. News managers have to decide every day, how do I cover the important topics in my community with half the people I used to have. Can I still cover City Hall? Can I cover crime the way I used to? Can I cover the courts? Can I cover state government? So I'll just use as an example here in my community, Cincinnati, Ohio, the newsroom is much, much smaller, less than half as big when I was there ending in uh, 1994. When I signed on to the Cincinnati Enquirer in 1986, we had a business reporting staff of about a dozen people. I covered three or four companies. Another colleague covered three or four companies. It was a, you know, an embarrassment of riches. We had eight sections a week. Uh, we got to write columns. We had full color. We had charts, right? We had a very robust uh, news product for the business news section. Now at the Cincinnati Enquirer, 
in 2020, they have one business journalist. He covers the entire Cincinnati business community. And that kind of situation has been replicated across the country. The upside is that you can find Cincinnati Inquirer coverage at Cincinnati.com very easily. Right now, because it's the coronavirus age, they're offering a lot of free access to their to their coverage. Um, but they have one person covering the business community. They have one person covering City Hall. They have one person covering the courts. They have very few people covering anything outside of the central Cincinnati population, right? So if you live out in the suburbs, good luck finding any news about your local community. On the flip side, there's been an explosion of web-only delivered, meaning original web uh, news organizations. And here I'm talking about anything from Politico to BuzzFeed to the Marshall Project to dozens of sports websites that cover the heck out of teams and so forth. So there's been an explosion in original web journalism, but all of those organizations are scrambling constantly to find revenue to support their efforts, to hire reporters, to keep the lights on, to just be operational. It's it's challenging times, yeah. So given that this is already a a very difficult situation in many respects. How does this rise in the idea of fake news and the perception that some media organizations are generating fake news, a perception that is in some cases fueled by the president? How does that affect the current landscape? It is problematic, right? So yes, it is demoralizing and it creates this unnecessarily contentious relationship between the press and everyone else. That's where it's most dangerous in my estimation. Yes, he can mix it up with Jim Acosta or the New York Times. You know, they can fight back. They have the resources to just carry on, right? But because it's coming out of the mouth of the president, it's amplified. He has a very large megaphone. And when he calls any member of the press fake news, enemy of the people, it's very easy for that message to be replicated, repeated, co-opted by any other party who wants to, uh, you know, mix it up with the press or um, accuse the press of being inaccurate. So there's a couple things I think to really key on here. First of all, there is fake news, but it's not the kind of fake news that Donald Trump talks about. It's truly the fake news that Russian bots and other kinds of operatives planted in our media ecosystem in the 2016 election, right? That really exists, that there was the creation of false information, fake stories, if you will, that were planted into Facebook, Twitter, and other places during the 2016 election, and probably before and certainly since. What might be an example of that? Um, So let's see. I think in the 2016 election, there was fake news planted about Hillary Clinton and the existence of some kind of, I don't know, child slave ring in a pizzeria. I may not be getting it exactly right, Rachel, but some of those words came together and it was totally bogus but it was planted somewhere and some people believed it, right? And circulated it. I'm just pulling it up now, actually. There's an article about it on the Rolling Stone website by Amanda Robb. It's titled Anatomy of a Fake News Scandal. And then the subheading is 
inside the web of conspiracy theorists, Russian operatives, Trump campaigners, and Twitter bots who manufactured the news, news is in inverted commas, that Hillary Clinton ran a pizza restaurant child sex ring. It seems to be referred to as Pizzagate. Yeah, yeah. So I'm I'm, you know, I'm remembering some pieces of it correctly, but not all of it, you know, in, in its entirety. Um, what I'm recalling is that in 2016, whether it was, you know, Russian operatives, i.e. people or Russian bots, meaning some technology that, that replicated it, it was messages that would disrupt the political conversation. Things that were over the top would have a racist feel to them or a sexist feel to them, but it was out there, right? And so when the president talks about fake news, there really is fake news intentionally created to disrupt or misinform people. But the other thing, Donald Trump's version of fake news, which is simply his criticism of coverage that he does not care for, that's what's been really detrimental to journalism. So there are some people who are going to conflate the real fake news, meaning intentional misinformation, they're going to conflate that with Donald Trump's version of fake news. But Donald Trump's version of fake news is to call out journalists for coverage he does not care for. And that has been extremely demoralizing and extremely damaging because some people believe him and because some people then take that language to just throw it back at any journalism they don't like whether they're at the highest level of government or they're, you know, talking about their hometown action channel four, whatever, right? The story they don't like, oh, that's fake. That's fake. The other thing that it's really been damaging is that other world leaders, other government leaders have taken to calling coverage they don't like fake news. They're borrowing the Donald Trump playbook and they're using it in their countries, whether they are democracies or not, to likewise demonize the press, to call out any coverage that is not favorable. There was a fantastic piece that the publisher of the New York Times issued last fall, the fall of 2019, was actually a commencement speech that he had given. So this is A.G. Sulzberger talking about the grave harm that Trump has done to the conversation around the world. I mean, he's really created a global threat by using this language because other government leaders in other countries have co-opted it to likewise demonize their journalists. That is a grave threat to the role of journalism at a global level. So what can we do, we meaning people who are not journalists but want to be informed, be part of an informed democracy, how can we practice media literacy when we are bombarded by information from all sides? How can we separate the wheat from the chaff, the fake news from the real news and so on? First of all, go to the source. Young people today are very agnostic in terms of their use of media. They'll simply, um, you know, read anything that comes into their phone without discerning whether it comes from a legitimate news source or has been circulated from some place um, that is less legitimate. So I always encourage students to go to the source, go to nytimes.com, go to cnn.com. If Fox is your brand of news, go to fox.com and read the news where it comes from, right? Read it at its at its root so that you know that you're getting journalism that has been produced by journalists. Go to trusted, legitimate, 
longstanding news sources. So New York Times, Washington Post, LA Times, Chicago Tribune, um, ABC, NBC, CBS, CNN, Fox, um, MSNBC, if that's your brand, um, et cetera. But go to sources that really employ journalists as opposed to just opening a link on your phone that you really have not checked out yourself. If you ever read something that you think is too good to be true or too weird to be true, go back to the original source of the link that you've opened and make sure it is coming from a news organization you've heard of and that you trust. And if you are going to, you know, actually take it to its base, you know, you can go back and investigate the original source of the news. Open up that link, go to the very bottom of that website, open up the About Us tab, and read about the news organization or the organization that has provided the link, and uh, decide for yourself whether you trust it. Now, are most Americans going to go to that amount of work? No. So go to the brands that you know and you trust, the ones that have long served the American public with legitimate journalism. That sounds like excellent advice. Thank you. Are there any other tips you can give us to help us to be contributing members of an informed citizenry? So uh, one is to actually read the links that come to your phone <laughs> or, or come to your desktop. Um, again, because of my day job teaching journalism, I think too many of our young people just read the headline. They read the link, but they don't open it and take time to actually become more informed. Take that 15 minutes to become informed about a topic you have never been informed on. Um, so let's say you've just been keeping your head in the sand and you've not been paying attention to COVID-19. You're like, oh, it's too much. I'm scared or whatever, right? Well, take 10 minutes, 15 minutes to read that one story. Understand what's in the news today uh, about COVID-19 and how it impacts your life. And then do that again tomorrow and a third day. And on the third day, you're going to all of a sudden be very interested in that story. And you're going to feel like a more informed person that you can actually have a conversation with the people in your life about pick your topic. It's the habit of three. I always say it's a habit of three. Once you read something you've never read before, if you read it day two and day three, all of a sudden you feel more informed, you feel more equipped to be part of the conversation. And that's going to create a repository of background so you feel as though it's worth it to read the next day story and the next day story. So that's a small tip that I give to students. Uh, I do wish more people would be engaged with journalists and journalism at the local level. We have a terrible crisis in our country that we have too few resources devoted to news gathering. And it really is important that the everyday citizen pay attention to that and react to that. So let's say, again, you're in Cincinnati and you watch Channel 9, the ABC affiliate, WCPO, and you watch a report and you think, well, oh, wow, that wasn't very good. That wasn't very well told. That was wrong. That wasn't comprehensive, right? Whatever your analysis of the story is, why not reach out to that journalist or better yet, his or her boss, the news director, the station manager, and say, hey, station manager, I don't think your reporter got that city hall story right. That was really an inadequate story for the following reasons, right? Um, I do think we need citizens to say 
that they want more news, they want better news, they want news that's produced at a higher, more in-depth level, or just reach out to your news manager and say, you're not covering this giant issue at all, and I want you to do more on this topic of importance to our community. I think that too many consumers of news have just taken what the news organizations in their community are giving them. And I'd like, I'd like them to speak up and say, not so much you're giving me fake news, you're giving me less news. I want more news. <laughs> How can we make that happen as a community? What can we do to um, advocate for more resources for news? Right? This is a, a tremendous conversation that could be had at the local level. Uh, we need more resources to cover local news. And there's many, many ideas that are out there floating around to put more resources to work for journalism. Should there be a tax? Should there be more nonprofit dollars going to support news gathering? Should there be citizen journalists employed in service to us all? There are hundreds of little ideas out there that people are playing around with. None is the solution, but combined, they're all among the solutions that can be helpful in um, you know, helping local communities get more news. Here at Miami University, our local community foundation, it's called the Oxford Community Foundation, is helping fund journalism uh, that students are producing. We have a class that's putting out a weekly newscast on OxfordObserver.org. It's a small group. It's, uh, you know, 10 to 15 students and two professors. Another class is handling the editing. We don't have a newspaper in our town anymore. And this is what we in the journalism program here have settled on as a suitable uh, solution for the time to bring news to our community. Um, so I'd like to see more of that. You know, that's just one example among, again, the hundreds that are out there of ways that the community can help fund journalism. Well, that's some uh, wonderful advice and also some examples of ways to go about making a difference. Um, thank you so much for joining us, Patricia Gallagher-Newbury. Great to talk with you. Best of luck. Patricia Gallagher-Newbury is president of the Society of Professional Journalists, and she runs the journalism program at Miami University in Oxford, Ohio, which is where she joined me from. I'm Rachel Hopkin, and I'm in Columbus, Ohio. Real Issues, Real Conversations is a production of Ohio Humanities, the state-based partner of the National Endowment for the Humanities. The views expressed here do not necessarily reflect those of the National Endowment. This program is part of Democracy and the Informed Citizen, an initiative administered by the Federation of State Humanities Councils. The project seeks to deepen our knowledge and appreciation of the vital connections between democracy, the humanities, journalism, and an informed citizenry. Many thanks to the Andrew W. Mellon Foundation for their generous support of this initiative and the Pulitzer Prizes for their partnership. Sokolovsky Music at sokolovskymusic.com provided the opening and closing tracks. And to learn more about Ohio Humanities podcasts and other projects and programs, please visit ohiohumanities.org.